Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's, um, let's see now, it's Monday already. Um... Monday on uh, Rosh Chodesh uh, ER, and I'm going to try to uh, see if I can do that bio today. It's going to be a packed week. Uh, today's uh, talk is being sponsored by the Elbaums here in Baltimore. Uh, this is for Ari's grandfather's yard site. That would be the father of Judy. Uh, what he said is that Sal Nathan said, Shlomo Yakim and Mordechai Tzvi. Who was very Baltimore-ish, okay? Born in Baltimore in 1914 and grew in Forest Park. That's where I grew up, okay? There once was such a, a place. On the 4100 block of Norfolk Avenue, that's where I grew up. I grew up in 3801 Norfolk Avenue. And uh, it's from Lithuania's parents. His father from Shadowa, his mother from Ariagola. You can't get more Lithuanian than that. I met people from Ariagola, uh, which is near Kedan. I know it doesn't mean anything to all you. And Ari wrote, Grandfather, my grandfather was a very much a Litvak in personality, determined and resolute, but showed people he cared through action, not just words. That is the type of people I grew up with. He always said, think with your head and not with your heart. That is the type of people I grew up with. And they had a shoe business of some kind. They ran the business downtown, very scrupulous in business dealings, treating employees very well. Like I said, talk is cheap. You know, actions count. <laughs> he was a rational, ethical, good man who took great pride in his Yiddish guy and his family. I was very pro Israel. That you just described my childhood. Okay, that's a world that no longer is there, but it was there once upon a time. So pay tribute to his memory. Shem Shemalia, as they say. Actually, I shouldn't say that for him because the Litvaks do not say the Shem Shemalia. That's a Hasidic word. But we can cross boundaries over here. Now um, I want to talk about the riff. I saw it today. The yard site is one of these days, and uh, that's somebody I can sink my teeth into. Although the riff presents us with a lot of historiographical problems of a interesting nature. There are many, now, the Riff is a great rabbi, for those of you who have no idea I'm talking about, who lived in the 10 hundreds. Okay, let's put it out there. And he lived to be 90, so it'd be 1003 to, uh, no, 1013 to 1103. So you're talking about the 11th century, if that means anything to you. Now, I know it doesn't mean anything to most people, but the 11th century is actually a very important uh, century in the history of um, Jewish intellectuality and rabbinic literature. Um, because that's the same century, the Rift, the Rambam, the, um, what do you call it, the um, Oruch, and uh, our hero today is Yitzhak Alfasi. But the point I was going to say was, was, it's often the case, these people in the early, high Middle Ages, we don't know a whole lot about them. <clears throat> we know about their books. And there's a nice uh, sp- speech from uh, Sam's Ravel Hirsch somewhere, where he said, uh, def- defending, he, you know, Hirsch was against the Wissenschaft des Judentums. The, the, Hirsch was against Jewish, the modern profession of Jewish history in which I engaged. And uh, for his own Frumkite reasons. And he said, what's more important, to know the dates they live and not read their books or not know the dates they lived and read their books, you know? So the Riff is definitely somebody whose personal history is kind of uh, uh, unknown to well, more Paul, but his books aren't. They're very well known. Uh, especially his big book, The Reader's Digest. Now, 
Um, let me explain. Our hero is from North Africa. So he's not Ashkenaz, not Sephard. You got to get used to this. And in the early Middle Ages, the ethnic identities are not so uh, hardwired, so crystallized the way they would be later on in the uh, Middle Ages. So Ashkenaz was just starting to happen. Um, France, parts of Germany, it was starting to happen. Uh, Italy was old. Uh, but in the case of our hero, he's from a relatively new Saviva called North Africa, a Tuni what you and I today call Tunisia and Algeria. Many people, and you'll often find this, will say, Rabbi Isaac Al-Fasi means like this, Rabbi Isaac of Fez. That's what Al-Fasi is in Arabic. And so they say, oh, well, he lived in Morocco. But then they always run into the problem, actually, to describe living in Algeria and going to Yeshiva in Tunisia. So then they'll come up with all kinds of theories. Uh, uh, a regular, I myself used to be like this, you know. Well, maybe he moved later on to uh, Morocco and Fez, and therefore he had Yeshiva, and that's how he got the name. But the truth of the matter is that Jewish names are very confusing. They don't mean you're from there. I know a lot of people in Baltimore named Berlin. That's their last name, Herman Berlin, for example. He's not from Berlin. He's actually Litvish. You understand? Who knows where they got that name? I know people named Warsaw. So do you. You know people named Vilner, which comes from Vilna. That don't mean they're from Vilna. It means somewhere back in the, you know, whenever they were. You know people named Kovner. I know people named Frankfurter and Bamberger and, you know, Hamburger and names like that. It doesn't mean that this particular family is from there. I'll give you an example. Know to be who is Yechesko Landau. Know to be lived in the 1700s. He ain't from the town of Landau in the Rhineland. Maybe if you go back a couple hundred years, Kenzai. So I'm just warning you, just because the guy's name is Alfasi doesn't mean he was ever in Fez in his life. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't, but we don't have historical records about this. Okay? It could just be that's his family name. How they got Alfasi? Maybe a grandfather or a grand, you know, who knows? Uh, so as far I can only tell you what I know, or I think I know. I can only do what I think I know. And um our hero is therefore somebody from who lives to be 90 years old. That's a long time in the 11th century. So he had good genes, as they say before, and he was lucky enough never to fall and break a leg or something like that, because then you were doomed, you know, with the medicine at that time. So uh, he lived that kind of a life. And he uh, was most, for 80 years, no, for about 75 years, that's it, 75 and 15. So for 75 years, the robe of his life, he's living in what you and I call Algeria. Um, this is the part of Western Africa, but it's not Morocco. At that time in Tunisia, now I'm using modern terminology. These are the countries to enable you to look it up on the map. Right? You can Google it. So there's Algeria, next to it is Tunisia. At that time, they were called different things. So we're talking about somebody who lives all of his life in the world of Islam. Very, very briefly, the Arabs conquered this giant empire in the 600s. We've spoken about it many times. They created a single state, the Caliphate, from the Atlantic Ocean to India. So if you're Jewish and living in the 600s, the 700s, the 800s, and even into the 900s, it's one big Medina. But then it broke up into pieces. You know, the central government couldn't control everything. And therefore, by the time we're talking about the different places in Africa are no longer part of the single Arab state, but they are Arab in their culture, their Islamic and religion. There's a certain surah and the riff. Our hero lives his whole life in the world of Islam, just like Maimonides. Okay? That's what they were. Uh... He's from a certain town, call to you, it doesn't matter to you. He's, they say, listen, we know very little about him. We don't have birth certificates, anything like that. There was a guy named Arrived. Not Arrived, but Arrived. There's several different guys named Arrived. So some Arrived are famous rabbis. 
And one rabbi was a historian, get it? Rabbi a historian. He wrote a book called Sefer Kabbalah, and it, it means, in this particular case, a history book. It doesn't mean Kabbalah like, uh, like you're thinking. And he said a certain amount of information about the riff. <clears throat> Assuming that it's true, there's no way of checking. Assuming that it's true, so that's, you know, what we know about the riff. And he's from Algeria. He he obviously became a big Tamakacham, obviously. Where did that happen? Well, if you're talking about the 10 hundreds, you're talking about Algeria, there's nothing going on over there, but there is something going on nearby in Tunisia, in Kairouan. What's the shot? There was a guy, there's a whole legend, but I'll skip the legend. There was a, a, a what we would call today a Rosh Hashiva from Italy. Italy was already a Makam Torah long before these other places, southern Italy. And one of Chushil, he ended up in Kairouan, and he set up a yeshiva there. So it's more or less equivalent to Ryan Cutler moving from Lithuania and setting up Lakewood in America, with the same kind of results. And our hero, the Riff, will do this later in his life also, when he'll run away from North Africa and move to Spain. And he'll take over a yeshiva over there and make it a big deal. So in his youth, Rebizikal Fasi, our hero, uh, obviously went to yeshiva in Tunisia, in Kairouan. By the time he, he was there, it's already not the first generation of founders. No, it's not Rabban Cutler, but it's like Schneer Cutler, you see. It was Rabbeinu Hanano. You've heard of him. And he's on the side of the Gemara and all that. <coughs> and uh, it's a pretty intense uh, study of the Talmud. And uh, that's who the riff is. There are all kind of different rumors and half-truths. You know, <coughs> was he a Talmud, this person, that person? There's nothing hard and fast on this if you want to be historical. All we know is, like you say today, he learned in Lakewood. Whether he knew or Byron or Schneer, I don't know. You know, I mean, he must have. But you know, and the years are, make it possible because uh, Rabbeinu Hananel was born in 965. It could be very, it, it, very likely so. But I see. I read a scholar who said that the Riff quotes the Rabbeinu Hananel like four times. So it doesn't sound like they're that type. Who knows? All I'm saying is, here's somebody who. Um, Learned up a storm in the yeshiva in the ten hundreds. It's interesting because this is now the era of the decentralization of the Torah study. Prior to that, uh, mainly everything was concentrated in Iraq in Surah and Pumbedis, what they call the Gaonim. And now we see the breaking away from the exclusivity of the Gaonim and people in North Africa and Europe setting up their own independent centers. But then that means that we're dealing with a very interesting intellectual phenomenon. Uh, how do I poskin? How do I know what the, what the law is? So you can do one of two things. You can say like this. I know what we did in my house, and I know what we did in my parents' house, and they knew what they did in their parents' house, and they knew what in their parents' house, called mimetic tradition, kabbal. Kabbal in the sense of Moshe Kibbal Tarmusina, Masari Shulah Shulah Kanan, you know, individual, individual uh, uh, family and communal uh, minhagim and things like that, with a real Masari. So then, you say like this. This is what we do. I, when I read the Gemara, it doesn't exactly equal that way. All right, so it doesn't, you know, figure out some reason why. That's one way of doing it. That is the Gaonic way, okay? People write to the Gaonic and they say, what's the Hanhaga? What does the Talmud say according to your tradition? Hear what I just said? What does the Talmud indicate according to your tradition? And the Gaonim would tell people, when I say Gaonim, I mean the Yeshiva, the Surah and Pumadisa. It wasn't the Gaonim talking. It was the academies. I explained that once when we talked about Sadiqon. And... Uh, you would get sort of like the, the mimetic tradition. Now, here's another way. Heck with the mimetic tradition. I'll read the Gemara and figure out myself from the Gemara. Get it? Straight from the Shas. Uh, once, 
Now, this is a revolution that commenced in the 10 hundreds and then just intensified. It is not true today that you and I say, okay, let's try to figure out what the Gonim did and let's do the same thing. There's a whole bunch of other people in between. And in the 11th century, in the 10 hundreds, started the process where people more or less said like this, you know, the Gonim say this and this and this is what the Gemara means, but that ain't the way I read it, right? And I'm convinced that my reading is correct. Is this permitted? Is it not permitted? Well, they did it, so it's permitted. So this independent evaluation on Talmud on its own, I'm talking about big people, not little people. And I'm talking about from people, too. Uh, it's, it's something you generally associate with the ten hundreds. And uh, therefore, in Rabbeinu Hanan, all these other people are doing that. And um, that's who the riff is. Now, obviously, if he's born in 1013, so do your math. So he must have been in Yeshiva there in the 1030s, uh, I guess, 1040s, you know, those years. And then he's like, uh, you know, sets up a shop like people do, be his own bro, have his own Yeshiva. I think they say he had his Yeshiva back in Algeria. When I think, you're going to laugh at what I'm going to say, but when I think of the river, I think of Vadi Yosef. Now, it should be the other way around, I get it. But I'm, uh, I think of Vadi Yosef. He became a big, charismatic person, obviously in North Africa. And he had a yeshiva. In the yeshiva, now I'm going to tell you my understanding. Whatever I'm telling you is my chunk that I put together from all the different things that I've learned and read. So my riff is a person who had this yeshiva is turning out, um, you know, intensive study of the Talmud, as they say, but realizes, um, because he wrote the riff, you know, realizes that there are certain problems with Talmud study in the mass level to whatever whatever that meant in the 11th century. And basically, um, I would identify, in my opinion, two target audiences for whom he composed his big book. Because when he's Rosh Hashiva, now that it's the, uh, let's say, for, if he's born in 1013, so let's say he was uh, 30 in 1043, you know, so in the 1040s, 1050s, that kind of thing, in the 60s, that's when he composed his big book, which took off, skyrocketed, and made him a rock star. Now, um, he clearly saw that in his school, which was probably very well attended, you have, um, of course, the top 10%, the Yechide school, it's always like that in any yeshiva. So the top 10% are interested in, or 20%, whatever, <clears throat> going through the Shah's line by line, and so on and so forth. But then you have, below that, you have the bottom 80%, right? Who, there are two groups, A and B. One are the following. The guys are going to be clay Kodish. What are you going to yeshiva for? For some people, the idea is like this. You become a rabbi. Or what does it mean in the 10 hundred to be a rabbi? A dayan, all right? It's the Arab empire, or the Islamic world. Um, there are Jewish communities scattered throughout the Mediterranean in the Islamic areas, in Spain, in Morocco, in Algeria, Tunisia, all the way Libya down to Egypt and beyond. Um, these places all had <coughs> kehillas. These are what they call in Arabic al-Hamma. Uh, these kehillas had, as we all know, um, court systems of their own. It's one of the key features of the old autonomous Jewish communities. This is when that um, system rocked and uh, heyday 
And so you have dozens and dozens of Jewish communities, each of which makes Shabbos for itself, its own independent community, has its own independent court system. So they need judges to run the court system. Now, the truth of the matter is, there's a long tradition of getting laymen to sit on court cases, especially when it comes to business, because they figure, like, it's the rabbi doesn't know. But at the same time, there's a countervailing dynamic in which you'd like to have somebody who doesn't just shoot from the hip, you know? But there's it, 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 there's a system of laws, and he knows what they are, and he's competent jurist. That way, there's a predictability, and that's necessary for business dealings. Because if you and I go, go in the business deal, and could be we'll have a disagreement, and you don't know what the heck the judge will say, or the court, it's impossible to operate. Because you might screw me over, or something like this, or things can happen. And then it's like roll of the dice. This nutball Besden can just do something out of left field or right field. This is the problem we have with basins today, you understand? Everybody knows this. So what you want is predictability, and you want um, a certain sense of, uh, what's the right word? Acknowledge scholarship, you know, you, you know where it's going. So that if you cheat me this way, or if there's an accident, or there's a misunderstanding, we know, generally speaking, what the law will result in. And this countervailing dynamic um, was the reason that these communities, when they could, would try to get a guy, I'll use I'll use contemporary language, get a guy who knows Chesha Mishmet well. And, uh, okay, so then you, you, you see what I'm going for? Now, Imagine it's not only Chosh Mish, but it's everything. So, because your community has issues with Shabbos, and you know they want to know whether this is okay and that's okay. They have, a, or you know, to sell the business to a guy or whatever, or the community has a area of questions or Gitin or anything. Okay, see, with somebody who's, who looks like a competent jurist, so that's very interesting. I think that that's mainly who his students are, or at least a large proportion of his students were, and therefore. You're talking about training someone to be a Pisic and a Dayan. That's a very specific kind of training. Uh, now, the top 10%, the top 20%, your Vilnagon types, they can do everything. They know all the raid, plus they know the Psak. But for most people, either it's three groups. They're the losers, okay. You know, they're not going to be good in anything. And then they're the winners. Some are, by definition, for the lumbus for the rate. That's what who they are. And some are for the psak. That's how it goes. Uh, it's possible to do both. I, I It's true. But it, it's not common. Um, as I said before, it's not common. There's a lot of knowledge out there you got to know. And so he obviously was interested in um, helping those who are going to graduate from his yeshiva and moved to become official positions with Dayanim in the court system, the Beisdin, the Bate Din, throughout the contemporary world, especially in the Mediterranean, they should be competent in what they do. Now, again, let's say we're dealing now with the population of people who are going to graduate from the yeshiva and then become judges. Uh, again, you got your top 10%. They can, remember, we're talking about the 11th century over here. There was no Shulchan Aruch, there was no Ramam, there was nothing. So how do you know what the heck to do? It's a good question I'm raising. Here's the fundamental problem of the 11th century and other centuries, which is the Jewish people committed themselves to following the Talmud, but that's very hard. And uh, especially the Paskin out of the Talmud is extremely hard, just from the Gemara by itself. And this is before Rashi existed. So, because the Riff is a contempor- an older contemporary Rashi. So how do, you, how do you do all that? You see? 
How do you do all that? So again, the top guys, well, they're the Vilnagon types. They can know the whole shots and uh, they have it memorized and that sort of thing. And they've gone through the sugya. And we all know the sugya is a real bummer because sometimes it's in this gemara and sometimes that gemara and sometimes you have to put together five and ten gemaras. The Gaonib um, seemed to, this is what the historians say, the Gaonib simply had a policy that there was the main sugya and that's the one you follow. And the side ones, less, much less. But in the ten hundreds started the countervailing dynamic, which wasn't satisfied with that, and which um, eventually ended up in Tosos, as you know, in which you got to know the whole sugya. And then it's got to all come together in some way. So here I'm dealing with very broad, fascinating themes in the history of Torah scholarship, each one of which deserves a long talk on its own. But who's got the time for that? But the riff is at the center of all this, and I'll say it again. For his top students, so you say like this, you graduated, you learned in my yeshiva for five years, ten years, whatever it was, I'm giving you smicha because I know you know your stuff, and go out there. And when you have problems in Gitin and uh, how to do a tzuba, and the Yerusha, and Hilchas uh, Nashim, and, uh, you know, the Erev, and the whole nine yards, you know, business, I know you by now, and you'll be competent to find your way through Shas. That's very few. <laughs> right? The average guy said like this, can you give me a cheater book? Right? Can you help me out? Starting in the 900s already, Sadigon and some of the other Gons started putting out cheater books in Arabic. Uh, you get it to help these judges because I'm the only guy in town that knows how to learn. I'm going to move to a community. It's nobody to help me, most likely. I want to do the right thing. And I'm not a walking encyclopedia of Shas. I need some guidance over here, right? I need internet, you see? I need Steinsaltz. I need hard scroll. At least, you know, uh, something. So for these people, he composed what we all know as the Sefer Arif, Sefer Halachos, which he did in his unique way. It's a genius kind of idea with pluses and minuses. And as we all know, what he did was a kitzer of the Shas. Okay? So he published this book, which he must have worked on for years. And he never got it down to perfection because later in life, he changed his mind on a lot of things. Uh, if you know from the Shalos and Shivas. And uh, nevertheless, you imagine a guy who's Rosh Hashiva and a dying, of course, you know. Like I say, an Avad Yosef type, I mean that in a good way. And uh, or Yosef Cairo type in personality. That's how he comes across to me. And um, nevertheless, he's trying to deal with the needs of the of the uh, students who are going out to graduate. And basically he says like this, look, Mesech the Shabbos is a bummer. Uh, Ervin, all these things are bummer if you got a Paskin out of it and, you, and, you, and you're not the type that can memorize everything. So I'm going to make a kitzer of it, as we all know. And he set himself this interesting task to compose a uh, shortened version, a Reader's Digest version of the uh, Talmud Bavli, in which, first of all, first of all, you cut out the Agatha. Second of all, you cut out those parts which aren't no gay. No, just only deal with the Gemaras, only include those Gemaras which have to do with the bottom line. So you're skipping a lot of Shakovatari, a lot of Nosev and a lot of Raid in the Gemara itself. Uh, obviously, it's also true, since he's writing for Dayanim, you're skipping Kutchim and Tyrison's rum because you're never going to need that when you become a Dayan in the 10 hundreds in some Mediterranean community. You know, Kutchim questions are not going to come up. So we don't have the time for this. You hear, you hear what I'm saying? This is this is the idea of um, uh, what's the right word? 
you know, uh, limit, limitation. You're trying to provide a text that will help the students by a certain intelligent limitation. And um, and what does that mean? So here, let's say I was one of the guys. I'm a B-level student, you know. I know my Gemara, you know, whatever. I'm not a walking encyclopedia. But on the other hand, now I'm 25, 30 years old, whatever is, I'm married, I'm going to go out and get a job. And I was already hired at the recommendation of the Rift to be a dying, I don't know, in Sicily, Egypt, wherever, one of these little communities. <laughs> so he wrote a book in which he said like this, here's Masech the Shabbos reduced by 50, 60%, 70%. Uh, that you can read in Chazer, uh, Ervin, uh, Psachim, uh, you know, all the all the Gemaras, Baba Kama. If it's cut down in size, and it's cut down in complexity, and so in the style of the riff, you bring down only the basic Tanoim uh, Amroim uh, you need to know, and then what, and he'll tell you very often what the final din is. Uh, that's great. That's a cheater book par excellence. So if somebody comes to ask me a question about Tirusha, you know, saying, I'll know, I'll go to Christ above Vasa, whatever. It ain't going to be that long, Yeshnochlin, you understand? And it'll be Tzumzach, it'll be very concentrated. And uh, anyway, that's what I mean by the Reader's Digest version of the of the Shas. So in my opinion, as I understand it, the main target, uh, audience that was helpful for were the people already learned and know how to learn, uh, but they need help as Dayonim. And with the Rift, you have everything much simplified because, now it's true, you know, nothing can help the fact that you have to know where to look up Yerusha stuff. But if you learn a yeshiva so in 70 years, you should know that. Nothing's going to help if you don't know where to look up this particular question and get in which parak. I mean, you, you just got to know that, you see? I can't help it. You know, if you don't know where Lishma is, then don't be a dying, okay? But if you do know where Lishma is, but you're not sure after all the Gemaras, you know how, com how complicated the Gemaras can be, and especially when the Gemara doesn't come out of the final answer, and what, I got to look up five and six and seven places? Yeah, then the riff is great. That's the cat's pajamas, because then you say, well, he simplified everything, and he told me what the din is. And I, the community, might say, we've been doing such and such and so and so forth. The riff is the one who says, the Gaoni may say so and so, but here's why I disagree with them. This is well known. Anybody who's ever seen the riff knows this. And once in a while, you know, on his own, he'll, uh, you know, bring some extraneous material, but rarely. And uh, he doesn't have a God attack except once in a while, like the Ram for Stickle Sermonette or something like that. And the bottom line is a handy dandy book, which I always say which should be reprinted today. Uh, the Rivers had a funny uh, history, but skipping ahead, it would be, in my opinion, it would be a really great if somebody today, this is just my fantasy, somebody today would publish a riff, uh, just Manuka, of course, you know me. With like a very brief business at the bottom, you know, like a Kahati or something like that, the way they did in the Rambam Lam. And then, I want to tell you something. Every Shabbos, you could chaz a parak or two. You, you actually look like you know something. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I don't mean to be funny. Here we have the holiday of Shavuos coming up. It's totally possible with the Riff to do a reduced, uh, what is it, Beitzah? You know, so you know Hilkos Yantav coming up for Shavuos. Uh, you can do those part if you care to. I mean, there's hardly anything on Shuvitz anyway, but you know what I mean. You're not going to find anything about the Shtei Alechem, about the Carbonus, because he's not into the Carbonus. But to be perfectly honest, if you're Rabbi Mashol, or even you, yourself, out there now, so you don't know about Shtei Alechem, but you know about Hilkas Yantub, that's, that's that's very good too. But you know what I mean. When when Elul comes around, you can totally do the riff on Rosh Hashanah, 
and be ready for Rosh Hashanah. And in Yuma, because, you know, he only does, what is it, the, the last parak in Yuma, right? So, uh, you know what I mean? He doesn't do the, car, the, the basic Migdash stuff, but he does the fasting stuff, the Tainus stuff. Well, no, very good. So, you want to know what the din is? So, what are you, Rosh And Sukkah? You, you get what I'm saying? It's it's the, the, the reduced amount and the simplicity based on his prunings and his editorial work uh, are great, right? And it could be that everybody could d- d- do the shots all the time. Now, this is a very different model than the Dafyomi, which maybe I'll talk about in a minute. Now, the riff represents a certain trend in Torah literature, not the only one, and there's an opposite one, but he's in one of the kitzer of uh, of the uh, reduction um, of the trying to make it easier for the for the person. It's It was an attempt to make the Talmud, you know, more accessible in terms of the final psaac. Now, it has been suggested by scholars greater than myself that it's not simply what I said, but also he had in mind, uh, and there's a lot of evidence for this, uh, also had in mind to make the Talmud Bavli itself uh, a text that was um, accessed by a much larger element. Imagine before the riff. Who can bechla? I mean, when the Gemara had no Rashi, no nothing, no Nakudos, no punctuation. I mean, who can get into that? A very small number, unless you go to Yeshiva and you start from scratch and so on and so forth. And it used to be that you had to just hook up with somebody who already knew it and could translate for you. Because how do you? There's no way of, of entering that. You see, now the riff is not going to be good for somebody who doesn't know Aramaic, not familiar with the Gemara, but it will be good for. How should I put it? I'll call it the Dafyomi audience of today, right? Maybe that's not the right word to use, but you know what you know what I mean, right? Which is the average Batish guy who said, "I guess I'd like to know the Gemara all the rest." Of it. I don't have a, a super amount of time. Uh, on the other hand, I I, I I I don't want it to be terra incognita. I don't want to not know it. And so, uh, with the riff, everything's uh, shortened, meaning he made the Talmud Bavli itself much more accessible to a much wider student uh, readership because of its simplistic nature and things cut down uh, and and avoiding, you know, all the shakavataria, which frankly he doesn't need to know. In other words, I don't want to know this. I just want to know what the Gemara is and the Maskana, right? Why do I have to go and chase down a whole swar which turns out the end is rejected? You know, it's not the din. Why do I want to do that? Now, there's a contradictory sensibility, which says, no, every word in Shas is amazing, and uh, it's all uh, divine, and how can you have an attitude that you're not interested in that? Those are two different competing sensibilities. I'm talking about the one which the Rift was, was into, which is, of course, the ideal is to know everything, but in the real world is, uh, you know, a lot of people can't know everything, and they will be turned off. They will leave each other, they will leave learning. They'll say, the heck with this, you know, I bang my head against the wall two, three times, and that's it. I want, he would say, you know, to keep these guys in the parish also. And therefore, by producing a kitzer of the Talmud, uh, I'm keeping a lot of people in learning of a certain style. A learning of a certain type. Now, you can put your nose down or not put your nose, but it doesn't matter. Okay? And, um, indeed, we have Rishonim that talk like this. Uh, listen to this, for example. Here's the Meiri's Hakdama to the base of Achira. The Meiri, right, who's in the 1200s. And he says, "This is the Meiri talking." Ritzon Rova Mislamdim Asheroi Nenu Bedurin is a 
Most people who are in learning today, the Meiri is saying most people who are in learning, who lishnos alochim amechkar nimsa was talmud, they want to know just the basics, the halacha with the mechkar nimsa shamba talmud, which means the gemara is based on. So it's not exactly a shulchan aruch in which the or rambam in which the psak is completely divorced from the talmud. They would like to know the source of it, but that's all. May ain gilgul bilbule kushios. Without all the rave and the shakavatari and the kashas, the chavili tosafos. They don't need all that stuff. So I want to know, what is the din on yontaf with the cooking? And just tell me the small piece of gemara I need to know behind that. I don't want to just know, like the Rambam says, here's the din on cooking and not cooking. I want to know the gemara behind it, but not the whole business back and forth for three pages, you know, this a ton and that ton and, 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 and this kasha and that kasha. I don't want all that, right? And then more goes off of the derech, you know, and then and gets in the side issues. Just give me, you know, the 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 the, the meat, right? The, the part I need to know. Okay, and um, uh, you know, th- th- this is anyway. This is a a, a phenomenon in which um, the, uh, here's another one. From the Ra'a, you know, from the in Barcelona, the Barplukta of the Rajva. The Ra'a, Rabbi Arnalevi, the one who, uh, you know, the big Risham. He says uh, he wrote, as, and you know, the Ra'a wrote a piece on the riff, on Brachas. And he said, He says, I was asked to do this by my nephew. The guy works for a living, and he doesn't have time to put in hours and hours into learning. So therefore, he doesn't want to learn Gemara, he wants to learn Rif. Samlo has a Rif, Kesever Tachlif, and he's asking him, the Ra'op, his uncle, so it happened to be this guy was a businessman or something like that. His uncle was one of the Gedolim, the Ra'op, and he basically said, this is the Ra'op speaking, Hatalmat Ababi Heimayim Amukim, they made deep waters, Dvarim Ne'elomi Varuchim, Achakarul Chacham Machashachim, the Gemara says, Talmud Ababi is like dark area, you know, Machashachim, and most people try to get into the Talmud Babi. This is the Ra'al writing in Barcelona in the 13th century. It's a contemporary Rajba. He already says, most people try to get into Gemara and they find the door locked and they walk away. Plus, all the Mepharshim that are now piling up. And so the students, Ya'ev, are tired, meaning it's hard to break through all this. And Yatsu Dechufim, Tachlosh Daiton, Maton. And therefore, he says, Ani Barasi Yagin, and I'm trying to help, and therefore I'm going to write a page on the riff. So, in other words, um, uh, it's not just a book of laws which are helpful for the Dayanim, which it was. But it's also a kit to the Talmud to, to, to widen the area and make it uh, the Gemara itself more accessible. So this is a very controversial kind of idea because uh, maybe the riff will displace um, the Gemara. You understand? Uh, is that good or bad? Here we come to the to the art school question. You know, the Steins look like the question of every cheater book that's ever been created. You know, there's a plus and a minus to it, and everybody knows this. But the riff would therefore would be the champion of the idea that the perfect is the enemy of the good. 
Uh, I want to make something that's not the whole Gemara. It's a, it's a cut down version of all the rest of it, but that'll make it much wide, more widely accessible, and it'll also help those who need to try to figure out at least the basics of the halacha from the Gemara. So that's what the riff is, as I think everybody knows. Uh, and those things that are okay, he has halachas katanas with, you know, with the titsis and the fill and all that business. And the result was that he produced a work in the ten hundreds that had a life of its own. Now the riff himself. Uh, was in North Africa until he was in his 70s. And then the Sefer Kabbalah, that history book from the Rivet, not the Rivet, but the Rivet, tells us that he seems to have um, incurred the anger of a richy rich guy. And I remember the Sefer Kabbalah names names. He's a Kalaf al name, whatever his name was. You can look it up yourself in the, if you care to in the Sefer Kabbalah. And he says, you know, this guy, uh, so what seems to be is like this. Uh, he, he paskin against a, a, a gvir. And, uh, in those days, the gvirs were the ones who were tight with the government. This is an Arab society. And so basically, you want to get him killed, <laughs> right? He got the, the gvir angry. And, uh, therefore he had to run for his life. He might have to run for his life. Imagine that. Now, you'll tell me like this. Could it be? That you know, a godal ador like a Ron Cutler, somebody's going to threaten his life. You know, something we got people like that in Jewish history. The history of the Gvirim is not a is not a pretty picture, and the richy riches. You know, you have your good ones. You definitely do, and you also have this type of tip. I mean, I just I'm just trying to tell you, Stelza Forest. They say here's a guy dealing with the Rabbeinu Yitzchak Fasi, who was bigger than Baron Cutler. You know, what I'm saying he was a big guy in his time, and because he poskin against him in some case. Now maybe it was a case involving a million bucks. You know, I don't know. I wasn't there, but he got him so ticked off that he went and told the Arab ruler, and uh, you know, the Arab ruler said, and and since he's tight, he said you should kill this guy or something like that, because he had to flee for his life. That's quite a statement I'm making. And the result is that um, he ran away to Spain. And he comes to Spain in the ten hundreds. Okay, I remember uh, uh, you just walk it back. If he died in eleven o three, so walk that back in the late 1080s. So as I said before, he was in his mid-70s, about 75 or so. As an old man, 75. And he came to Spain, and people, and the Jews in Spain, in the 1080s, it's a very interesting period. I mean, it always is. The 1000s is the golden age of the Jews in Spain in many respects. Yes, in many respects, not. In the 900s was the uh, caliphate when the state was well-organized, and that's the time of Chazi ben Shaprut. But... In the 1000s, although the Arabs fell apart and broke up into competing states fighting each other, which helped the Christians in the reconquest of Spain, but it's also a time of brilliant civilization. The Arabs produced a belt of golden culture, and the Jews did. This is the age of the great poets, the great grammarians, the great uh, philosophers, and great Kamil Chachamim. And specifically, there was a certain lakewood or punish that arose in Spain in that time. There was Shmuel Hanagin. I never got around to him, but I talked about his son. Shmuel Hanagin was the prime minister, the grand vizier in Granada, in the kingdom of Granada. Uh, Shmuel Hanagin was an amazing guy. And one of the many things he did, besides run the country and lead the armies and this and that, be a poet, one of the things he did was to set up a Lakewood, okay, like super yeshiva, uh, not in Granada, but in Lucina, we spoke about it before. Which is a small town. When I was on a bus on my trip to uh, Spain years ago, I led a trip to Spain. You know, you, you blink and it's gone. You know, you, here we are in Lucino. 
and then, you know, and not not too far away from that area, Cordoba, whatever, in southern Spain. It was it seems to have been, according to Jewish sources, it was all Jewish town, all Yidden, and uh, that's the famous place. Shit, they did skila on a malshin in Shul, in Shul on Yom Kippur before Neila. I mean, that's how they talk about it. And it was a castle with a moat and all this stuff. And that's where you had the Lakewood. And Shmuel Nugget had set up, as they said before, because he was loaded, you know, he was a prime minister. So he set up a, uh, a yeshiva with a Karen Kayemis, you know, with a, a fund. He left it to the Ritzkias, Rabbi Yitzhak Ibn Gayat. And Rabbi Yitzhak Ibn Gayat, now let, when the rift came, within a short while, they said, listen, you're the big guy. You're the, uh, you know, the Vilnagon over here, whatever. And so you become the Rashid and Lucina, and that's what he did. So he spent the last 15 years of his life as Rashid of this Lakewood in Spain. That's why people mistakenly called the Rif a Sephardi. You know, I mean, I get it, you know, he wasn't Sephardi, but I understand. And during those 15 years, he made the, the Yeshiva like, uh, you know, radioactive. It was a hot place. That's when the Remigas showed up and many others. But he, but I just want to be clear. The same way Brian Cutler wasn't just all about Lakewood. He had a life before then in Kletsk and all that back in Europe. So the same way over here, the Rift, even more so, you know, for until he was 75, he was a big guy in Algeria. That's mainly who he was. The vicissitudes of life led him to Spain. Um, but nevertheless, that's, you know, he, so he had told me him all through his, his lifetime. And he died at the age of 90, which is advanced age. And as I mentioned long ago, he left it to the Rimigash. I think that's how he left it to him. So in other words, even though the Rif had a son, who was a Bar Hachid, and usually in the Yeshiva world, you give it to uh, nepotism. But um, in this rare case, uh, it went to the best guy. right? Even though the son was also a very good guy. It went to the best guy that was the Rimigash. It's Rimigash. Uh, there were Yehuda Levi, I want you to know, and Moshe Ben Israel, the two famous poets of the early 1100s, learned in the yeshiva when the Rif was there. And they have poems about him when he died. You know, very fancy Sephardic poems and all the rest of Kosovo, Barzel, oh, this and that and the other. Uh, now, and I remember Moshe Ben Israel, I told you this once, he, he wrote a whole poem where he says, this is a rare occasion where where meritocracy triumphed over nepotism. That's he has a whole poem about that. It's very cool, actually. If I ever do that, um, uh, if I ever find somebody who wants to uh, to uh, sponsor the whole series on poetry, then uh, I'll do that one time. You know, I'm looking if somebody wants to do that. Anyway, uh, not that I'm not up to my ears in this stuff already. Anyhow, uh, so that's that. Now, that's the lifetime of the riff. His book really took off. I mean, that's more interesting because the Sefer had a remarkable uh, reception. Uh, first of all, uh, just you should know, again, so the Rift died in 1103, in the early 1100s. The full effect of it was in the 1100s and the 1200s uh, because the world went gaga over it. But in, 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 in a very um, narrow geographical place or places, not in Ashkenaz, you know, because that's the 1100s is Tosus. So, you know, they quote the riff rarely. And they were not so impressed with it. I mean, they were impressed with it. I shouldn't say that. But, you know, they they don't, uh, they had a different approach, as we all know. The, 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 the Tosus, 
The Ashkenazim represented the idea opposed to what I just said before. How can you leave out things from the Gemara? There's no such thing as a part that count more than the others. How can you tell me that a Svara, if it's in Shas, you know, it's not as important because it doesn't follow according to Halacha. Any little dot in the Shas is, is Tile Tilim Shalachas and is worth the heaviest intellectual expenditure. And therefore, the style of the Tosis and the people who followed them was you leave nothing out, you skip nothing out, and you're eyeing, you know, super duper in every line, whether or not it comes out that that's, you know, that's no Gelach in the end. That's a, you know, that's a religious sensibility, okay? Uh, of course, it puts a heavier burden on the student, but in Ashkenaz, they say, heck with it, you know? Uh, if you can't cut the, cut the mustard, then get out. That's all. Uh, so that's how they, and, and, and this is a whole line of development which ends up in our time in the art school of Gomorrah. I'm, I'm saying to be, I don't mean to be funny. <laughs> what is the dafiomi? The dafiomi is not the riff. Dafiomi represents the idea. You can go through every single place in Shas, including Kachim and Tyrus and, and the Akadata and everything else, and you go line by line, and uh, you skip nothing. We do every Rashi, you know, many uh, dafiomis do every Tosus, you know, how everyone does their own way, but the theory is you leave nothing out. That's one way. The other way is the riff, which is you leave other stuff out, but then you 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 uh, open it much wider. Well, you see, if not for the art scroll, if not for the Steinsauce, there wouldn't be no Dafiomi the way it is. You get my point? In our time, in the 20th century, they created Shtek, they created Kalem, which enabled a person to do that. I mean, once you got the art scroll Gemara, it's just a question of time. You can go through every single line in the Gemara, without exception, including the Kachim and the Tyrus, and the notes that the art scroll is supposed to help you understand the background, without which you have no idea what's flying, especially in Kachim and Tyrus and, and, the, and, and difficult uh, things in the, in, in the Gemara. Now, I'm not knocking it. Listen, I work for the art scroll. I, I'm one of the translators. I'm not knocking it, but I'm saying you're, you're definitely using a lot of extra guys. None of this existed a thousand years ago. And so what the Rift's approach is, the stuff that's too hard, skip. But the perfect example is good. Concentrate on the on the parts you need to know, and I'll explain those parts, right? The little parts that you need to know. Now, uh, what happened was that, um, by definition, one audience that's going to be into this would be, well, two audiences that want to be into this would be the following. First of all, the average balabas. If you want to be a rabbi and have a what we call today a chavrashas or a gemara class, and she'll for the regular people, uh, a thousand years ago, 900, 800, 700, 600, 500, 400 years ago, 200 years ago, the, the regular Gemara went the up and down, the shock of a tire, you're going to lose a lot of people. The only people you're going to have in your Dafyomi or Hebrashas is when the guys themselves are already seriously learning Yeshiva. But if you, if you have ambitions to widen that, to bring in the shoemaker and bring in the tailor, and bring in the little businessman, and bring in the guy who has a a, a a kiosk or something like that. You want to have them have a um, immediate contact with the Talmud Bavli. So what you'll do is you say like this: I'm making a a, a, a blot shear. I mean, I'm making a chevrashas in my shul. It could be in Morocco. It could be in Portugal. It could be in Italy. It could be in Poland. We're going to do the riff. Get it? It'll be much easier limud, and you get the flavor of the Shas, but without all the hard stuff that'll put you away. Now, the counter-argument is, no, you want to do the old, you know, all the Gemara from top to bottom. Okay, but like I said before, then you're going to have a much smaller audience. You have a much smaller audience. 
So the riff um, became an object of fascination in uh, Provence and Aragon in the 1100s. It's just an interesting story. <clears throat> There's a whole book about this, if you want, or books. And the guy who wrote about this at great length was Professor Toshma, who uh, was a big uh, historian and Talmud Chacham in Israel, professor at Hebrew University. He knew his stuff. And he has a, if, I don't know if this interests you or not, but if you are, you should get his book about uh, the Balamors, Rachel Levi Bal Hamor Ubenei Hugo, HaSifruta Rabbanit, the Provence Mea HaShtemis Rape. And there's um, other people working on it now. There's this guy, Roth. There are, pe- there are people working on this stuff. But he's really into um, the questions that I'm raising. And I can't do justice because I'm not going to speak for three hours, you know. It's actually just a six-hour business, and I'm not saying by exaggeration. It's it's a very fascinating six hours, but I ain't got no six hours, you know. I got to go somewhere soon. So so, basically, when the text of the riff arrives in the 1100s in Provence and in Catalonia, in northeastern Spain, which by then is Christian, they think it's it, like I said before. This is great. This cast pajamas. This is fantastic um, because. Uh, a lot of these people were also into Limunichol of various sorts, or into Haskalah, which would be Jewish uh, grammar and the Bible and philosophy and all this kind of business. And so they want to know the Gemara. They definitely do, but Sumzach, you understand? So the riff is fantastic because it's a kisser. Like I say, they want the Reader's Digest of it. Let me tell you something. You can make fun of the guy that reads War and Peace with the Reader's Digest, but at least he read War and Peace. What do you have to say? You can say, I don't do that. Well, you end up knowing nothing. You see the point I'm trying to get at, and the um, the scholars in uh, in Provence and Languedoc and uh, Catalonia, that whole area of the southern France and northern Spain, can I say that? Which is the opposite side of the uh, Mediterranean where the Arabs were. They became we shown them there became fascinated. I mean, the Rivet, we're talking about big people over here. They became fascinated with it, and uh, let me tell you something. Uh, you should see, and of all people, the rabbit is a big uh, mavaker. You know, you know what the rabbit says about the Rambam, and the rabbit says, "Hindi soma riff, I feel Omar Haginchu small." If he says right is left, you know, I I follow him blindly. That's unusual. That's an example of the tremendous respect, the harotza, that the safer of the halachas got in uh, Provence, and uh, as a result, the scholars, the Chachmi Luniel, as they call them. And the Chachme, uh, other places, uh, Montpellier, they uh, really got into the riff. Okay? And, Mamish, what I told you, first of all, it was a great help for a lot of students that are what we call B level. Second of all, even the guys A level, they want to know the sheet of the riff. And they found it fascinating, his psak, because he disagrees a lot of time with the Gonim, but he explains why. They just were fascinated with it. Uh, unfortunately, for the history of the book called Riff, there was a guy who was prepared to be the Rashi on the riff. And he did do it, but a lot of his writings, you know, didn't didn't take off for some reason and weren't published until recently. That is the guy who I mentioned a week ago or two weeks ago, the patron of Al-Kharizi, Rabbi Yonason Akon Miluniel. This is somebody who was a, a correspondent with the Rambam. No, it was a Rishon. You know, he's a, this is a Chach Miluniel. He was a big time Chachem. And he fell in love with the riff, and um, he composed a whole, uh, you know, for the whole riff, for whole shots. And basically, he'd be like the Rashi or something like that, not exactly, for the riff. 
So if the riff would have had a, a look, then this, it would have circulated a text, the riff with the Rabbinian Yonason. And uh, it would explain for the students, and that would have helped the riff, you know, skyrocket even more. But uh, only part of it was circulated, and uh, by the time you get to the Gemaras, printing the Gemaras in the 1500s, it is Erevin, as you know. Uh, and since then, other scholars have published the other parts. But once you have other scholars publishing in, in uh, out-of-the-way uh, venues, uh, you know, it's not so well-known. Again, I repeat, somebody today want to do something cool, this is this would be very cool. Somebody will publish the riff with the kudas, obviously. Uh, and uh, at the bottom would be Pierce Rabbeinu Yonason. When whole, you know, whole shots, I think he did all the Gemaras, I believe. And that would be kind of cool by itself. Um... Because it'd be equivalent to you know a competition with the Gemara. Because the, the riff turned to be a competition with the Gemara. That's the interesting thing. The book turned out to be a competition with the Gemara, and uh, other scholars also got in on it. And you see, there was like a fascination in Provence and next door in Catalonia and Aragon with doing what I just said, which is uh, you know writing all this stuff. Now the funny part is, the riff also has shouts and she was many of them. And um, they've been published, again, they didn't have much mazel. <clears throat> a lot of it's in Arabic, a lot of it's in Hebrew. And, uh, you know, it was published here and published there and published there. Um, they're quoted, by the way, in the tour and the base Yosef and all that. I mean, the, the Shalom Shuz, the Riff, are not a little thing. You know, they're very widely held from. And he was asked all kinds of questions, as you can imagine. It didn't have the same oomph and the same luck as his kids or Gamar did to say for Allah. Uh, recently, if you're into this at all, I don't know who you are. I mean, I'm just talking here into a uh, into a phone. If you're interested, the um, uh, what do you call it? The Machon uh, Yerushalayim, you know, did put out not long ago the Shalos and Shubas, the Riff, in which they took from all the books and published and put them in a nice session with notes. I mean, it's a very nice edition. If you're interested in this at all, that's what you should get, just from a historical source, other sources. Uh, it's a very nice edition, and he just took all the stuff from the other places. And they said they're going to put out a second volume, um, uh, you know, of stuff that hasn't been published yet. You have from Ksav Yads and things of that nature. There was a Rabbi Leiter, if anybody remembers him years ago in, in Pittsburgh. He's one of these geniuses, you know. And I remember he put out a lot of uh, um, Horus and whatever on the riff, and they included that in this in this book. The uh, They did a very, very nice job. If you're interested in a Shalos Chivas riff. Now, the funny part is like this. The riff had a lot of Talmudim, as you would imagine. The guy I'm talking about is much like a Brown Cutler in that regard. He's going to have a lot of Talmudim over many decades. Okay? It's not just the Rimigash. The Rimigash he met when he was like 80 years old. Okay? I mean that. Okay? Until uh, then, he had a life. And so, maybe you've heard of Rabbeinu Ephraim. He's the one. Hmm. Stepanski has a whole biography of the Rabbeinu Ephraim, which is an amazing work. You would perhaps maybe have heard of him. He's the guy who says that you're not allowed to get drunk on Purim. That the whole reason they tell you about Rabbi Shechting, the other one, is to tell you that's not the din. Maybe you've heard that. Or he's the one who says, hmm, that the riff used to blow the chauffeur on Shabbos in his basin because, you know, he held it's a, the acre basin of the door. You know, it's like Galvna and the fourth pack of Roshana. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Rebbein Ephraim is an interesting person. But he had many other students, and they write him back and forth in these shalos and shubas, and let me tell you something. It's a Dover Yudua. Uh, many times, the riff will say, you know, I wrote this in the book, I changed my mind. I don't hold this anymore. Right? Um, 
because to the degree he was writing a halacha book, it was a halacha book what he held in his middle age, you know. Uh, in Jewish history, the riff is the third law code. Um, see, I don't have time to do all this. It takes so long to talk about everything. There's such a thing called the codification of Jewish law. And um, that simply means that people had so much trouble, like I said before, with trying to figure out from the Gemara that they need a cheetah book to tell them what's the final din. Uh, there had come out in the 900s, essentially before him, the first attempts to try to bring some halachic order a little bit into all the vast material of the Bavli and Shami, all the rest of it. Uh, the first one was the halachas psukos from one of the gonim. The second was the halachas gedolos, again, from one of the golem. And the third one is the riff. And he, as you know, he will disagree with the Bahag and all that stuff. And uh, as I said, oh, there's so many facets to this. The Riff, I think, expected that, it, first of all, so we have letters from him in which people raise challenges and will say, I changed my mind or changed the gears or something like that. You just know. So you'll have some Rishonim that weren't aware of that. And then we have the famous historical question you know, it's like they said about the Rambam. Somebody writes a whole period on a Shver Rambam, and then they find in the Geniza, somebody asks the Rambam, the Rambam says, hmm, good point, I changed my mind, you know. So do you blow all that learning out the window that the guy uh, put a lot of time to be metarsed or do you say no, and has value on its own? That's just an interesting intellectual question. This goes back to, like, you know, uh, who was the name of that book? Uh, the Chooser, The Chosen, something like that, you know, with the emendation of the text. Uh, that's just an interesting question on its own. The um, uh, but when it comes to the riff, so you have the same phenomenon. Uh, here, let me I have to change the hold up for a second. Where was I? Um, I think I was trying to talk about the fact that he, um, uh, in his childs and twos, especially, had all these Talmudim and something changes his mind, <coughs> which is normal. Now, the, the thing about the riff, I was saying, was he's a third of the code, the law codes. And what's unique about the riff is he wasn't a gong. The others were from Gon and Bahag and all that. Uh, when the riff came out, fair number of times, as we all know, he disagrees with the Gonim and says why. So basically what he's saying is the Gonim are fallible. They make mistakes. They make mistakes. Uh, you know, usually not, but uh, sometimes, yeah. And therefore I'm going to call when I see it. That is that is who the riff is, among other things. Now, I'm saying that because, um, you know, some people are ticked off by that. Who are you to say such a thing? And um, uh, a whole literature developed around that. Because basically, the Balamor, we called him, uh, who was in Provence, Rachel Levy, he wrote a whole thing to argue on the riff, uh, precisely when he says he's going against the Gonim. Uh, that's where the Balamor is. And as you know, uh, the Ramban, for example, the, the Milchamas Hashem is to defend uh, the riff. And, uh, you know, have all that lumbus back and forth. And there are others for him like that, deriving. There are other, in other words, for some reason, 12th century, you're very hot, wrapped around the, the whether the riff is always right or, or the riff is always wrong when he argues with the Gonim or things like that. The Rambam clearly comes from a riff background because his father, the Rambam's father, was a Talmud of Rimigash. So he says, Rambam's father was a Talmud of the Talmud of the Riff. Right? Rambam's father was a Lakewood guy. He learned in the Lucina Yeshiva. He had a Panovich guy. That's, that's who he was. And uh, in the Rambam's Hakdama the Mishnahites, if you take a trouble to look over there, um, he says, uh, let me see, he says like this, this is all from Arabic, you know, the Sefer Halachas of the Riff, 
he he beat the gonim out. No, he 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 knocked him out. Fishahen kolim kol toalios absakim because the rift includes all the toalios absakim hamishpatim hanistrachim bismanenu zayizman agolus because the rift has all the practical stuff that applies nowadays. Ukvar bire and this is the Ram I'm talking. Ukvar bire bohem kol shgio shenoflu pepiske kodmov and the rift <laughs> the rift did a ma'isa brera. He took the psalos uh, menochel. You know that's what he means. Be'ere bohem kolashkios shenoflu bepiske kodmov. That um, the riff is better than the bahag and the gonim because he was mevarer. He 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 chose out, as we would say, he removed the mistakes. Um, so when he argues with the gonim, the riff is right. He removed their mistakes that fell, as can happen in the piske kodmov and the gonim. And the only time the riff is wrong, the Ramam says, is very rarely, less than 10. In other words, the Ramam himself, this is the Ramam writing. By the way, the Ramam wrote this when he was young. So it's just interesting. The Ramam's not lacking in self-confidence. He said the riff is wrong less than 10 times. That's pretty good in whole shots. Meaning uh, where he agrees with him. So let's put it this way. He's giving him, um, you know, the, the seal of approval. Now, um, as I said, a whole literature went back and forth, you know, uh, the Rift versus the, the Bahag or the Gaonim in general. And, uh, the, you know, the Balamor rose up against the Rift and the Ramban, the Muhammad Sesham rose to defend the Rift. And uh, then you had it's all this going in the 12th century. And then being, you understand, Cohen wants to write like a, a, a big commentary to, um, you know, to make the Rift like a Gemara, so to speak. And you have other people in, in, uh, in Provence. They're engaged in similar enterprises. And uh, later on, the style developed, which is a funny style of the Ron and the Mukiosev and all that, which is to do the regular Gemara, but using the riff as the basis of the principal organization, even though they do not con- confine themselves to only those Gemaras that the riff includes, they go through whole shots. So, uh, you know, that's like a whole world by itself. All we see is that the riff became a very big favorite. That's my point, right? Very big favorite. And... Um, I think one of the main reasons is because of the advantages of the Reader's Digest approach. You just bring a lot more people in um, to get the basics, and then even if you're writing a pierce that includes the extra stuff, they at least have already started with a knowledge of the basics. Uh, in addition to that, I mean, you can talk about this endlessly. In addition to that, uh, but uh, uh, the point I wanted to make was like this. These Rishonim didn't have access very often to these Shalas and Shubas, where the Rift sometimes itself changes his mind. So in other words, it wasn't the last word out there that this is the final psaac. This you have to understand is something in general with the codification of Jewish law. We call bayata codificatio. Not the Rambam, not Yosef Karim, not anybody. Just because somebody publishes something, particularly if they publish something at one point in their life, doesn't mean that they're committed, if, they're, if they are truthful, and these people were, doesn't mean they're committed to holding that way for the rest of their life. So it doesn't mean what you read in the Sefer represents somebody's final opinion. But as far as the Olam is concerned, it does, because they don't have access very often to these letters and Shalos and Shubas and this and that and the other. The other person takes off. This is the history of literature and the Jewish people. So take, for example, the Rambam, um, who's just very interesting in connection with the Rif. The Rambam wrote the Mishnah Torah when he was in his 30s. <laughs> you know what I said? I hate people like that. <laughs> he was in his 30s. He wrote the whole Mishnah Torah. So who's to say, and this is true what I'm saying, that in his 40s and in his 50s, and in the 60s, he died in the 60s. He didn't change his mind on certain things. And the answer is he did. 
if you read his Shalos and Shubas, and especially his letters to the Chakmah and Nunyal and places like that, sometimes the Rambam changes his mind or modifies it or this and that and the other or says, yeah, I was wrong and erase it. Uh, there's all literature of this sort of thing. I remember years ago, some of you will know this better than I do. I think Mark Shapiro, if I remember the historian, wrote about some part of this in the tradition was 20 years ago, something, something like that. If this is a subject you're interested in. Uh, so it's just interesting. You have that with the riff also. Uh, but it doesn't matter. The safer the riff had a life of its own. And it retained its popularity until recently. The riff was constantly reprinted or re rewritten, you know, with, when they did manuscripts and reprinted and so on and so forth because it always was a value to a certain population. And this is the population like I said before, which is I don't have the time or I don't have the head or I don't have the energy or whatever it is to go through the shock of up and down. I like the simple Thompson's way of the riff. Get it? I like to, uh, I, uh, I, uh, like I said, perfect is enemy good. If you tell me I should learn Mesech the Shabbos every week, ain't going to happen. If you tell me I should learn the riff Mesech the Shabbos with a shear and shoal every week, I'll do it. Right? And I'll come out knowing something. I won't know every line in the whole Bavli. You know, life is like that. After all, raise your hand if you ever learned Yerushalmi. The answer is you've said, most of you, you said, I'll go through life with Yerushalmi. It's going to know the Bavli. That's pretty good too, which it is, which it is. So you see, that kind of approach was very much behind all this. In addition to that, um, in addition to that, it's also true that there were times in history, through historical screwball circumstances, that uh, the riff was popular simply because uh, there were times, like for example, when the Catholic Church would ban the Gemars and burn them all. I'm thinking just off the top of my head, in Italy in the late 1500s. So the Catholic Church ruined all the Gemars in the time of the Counter-Reformation. And um, they cracked down real hard. I did a, a, a video series on this, one of my uh, history lecture series in Baltimore a number of years ago in summer. I think it was called The War Against the Jewish Book or something like that. And um, then when the Jews like struggled to recover from that, the best permission they could get from the Catholic Church was to print not a Gemara, but say for Halachos, which meaning the riff. And so, in the yeshivas in Italy in the 1600s and the 1700s, most yeshivas in Italy only had riff. Think about that. That's, that's, that's rather remarkable. Uh, what's his name? The um, Azaria Figo, you know, we wrote the Geduli Trumas, is very well known. He said, I had only like three or four real Gemaras, which means the rest of it, he had to do the riff. Uh, so, you know, this is what life was like. Same thing was true in other times and places. However, it's also true that there was just times with a popularity of the riff. And that's why those of us old enough to remember, they used to, if you've been around old shuls of yesteryear, they used to print a whole separate series of riff, real skinny gemaras. I thought that when I was, I remember when I was a kid, the rabbi told me, bring this saver, and it brought back the saver. He said, no, you brought the riff. I didn't know. It looked to me like a gemara. You open up, in the middle is the, it looks like the gemara on the side was a long Rashi toast. Well, it turns out it wasn't Rashi or toast, it was like the Ron on the, on the riff. Um, so if you went back, like, you know, to Russia 150 years ago, Poland, there were a lot of places where they learned the riff. Now, I said again, there's nothing wrong with that. Suppose Purim was over. I'll give you an example. Purim just finished. And Pesach was around the corner. And the person said, I guess, I like the Chazar Pesachim. Uh, well, you, what you mean is you like the Chazar, the part of Pesachim, that's no get a Pesach. So if I were to rabbi in shul, and I wanted my Balabatim to be familiar with that, I'd say, listen, we're going to have a daily class now next 30 days, in the Rif, on Pesachim. 
you're not going to have anything about the carbon Pesach, but you have to think about Pesach, about the Chometz, about the Seder, you know, about the Bali Yerol, Bali Mozah, that you'll have. Uh, so that's very, very good. Now, this represents one line. What uh, The other line is to go and be very thorough and cover everything. That's what the line of Tos was. So, if you like the Rift versus Tosas, these are the two schools of thought. What's interesting, as far as the Rift is concerned, is, to a certain degree, the Rambam knocked him out. The Rift wrote this partially, as they say, as a halacha book. That's not, he calls it Sefer Halachas, but I don't think he meant purely as a halacha. Uh, but, you know, the Rift is like half and half. He gives you the dim, but he gives you the Gemara out of which it comes. <clears throat> There's a lot of people that that was too much for. And that's who the Rambam was servicing. And so, in general, you can view the Mishnah Torah as trying to make the argument that the Rift represents a stage in the evolution of Halacha books, but it's not there yet. And what I, the Rambam, are going to write, that's going to be, you know, like Goldilocks' perfect bed. Not too long, not too short. So, so as we know, the Rambam will um, completely avoid all uh, Gemara citations, which is driven as Mepharshim crazy. Uh, and the Rambam is going to write it in Hebrew, and not just quote out of the Aramaic from the Gemara. And the Rambam is going to organize it according to topic, and not just like the Rift does assume, well, you got to know the Gittin is going to be over here, you know, in, in this in, in this ch- uh, chapter, and where you're going to find the laws of, uh, I don't know, Ksuvah's Benendechrin or whatever. The Rambam has it all organized according to table of contents, as we know. Basically, the Rambam's trying to say, this, I'm going to do what the Rift tried to do, but didn't get right. The Rift was a great man, but in terms of, literary organization, presentation, I, my mind, is going to get this right. And he did. By that I mean, the Rambam kind of knocked the riff out. Isn't that right? Anybody wants to do that approach, you look up the Rambam. There's been a gigantic literature on the Rambam, which is a million times as big as the literature on the riff, even though the literature on the riff was very important, very chashav. And the, I repeat, the Rambam himself had the highest respect for the riff, and it's a double you do it at 99% of the time, or I don't know, whatever percentage, high percentage of the time, he disagrees with the riff. You see? So, uh, and anyway, if you, in, in the world of learning, I'm sure anybody knows what I'm talking about, you know, you generally find two ways of learning a Gemara, you know, the, the Rashi, Tosas, that kind of way. I mean, the Pirish of the words, or the Riff and Rambami kind of way, which is sometimes they just read the words differently. Um, they translate the words differently. And, uh, you know, a lot of this will end up in the Shulchan Aruch, Mechaber and you know, a lot of times. Uh Okay, nothing wrong with that. Uh, and therefore, the history of the riff. Now, I, I just scratched the surface today. But as you see, it's a very long uh, topic. If you're interested in this, I would rec- I would send you, and you can read Hebrew, send you to the many articles and books by Professor Toshma. He really was in love with this subject, and he did a very good job, in my opinion. I mean, the guy was very thorough. I'm impressed with him. And uh, you see this history, which I call the history of the cheater books. Um, which should play such a big role in our world today. Because I'm talking about the art scroll, I'm talking about the Masifta, I'm talking about all that business, you understand? The idea of of um, trying to crunch things down and make it available to a wider uh, mass of people. Not everybody's the top 10%. So what do you do with it? you say the heck with them? There is an elitist position, which is the heck with them. So I'll never know because so who cares? And there's another one that says, no, I would like to make this more widely available. Elu Elu Chaim, right? Elu Elu. And to be in constant tension, equipoise perhaps, uh, in the history of, of Torah uh, uh, scholarship. Uh, perhaps it's modified by the internet, and, you know, modern ways of uh, publishing and, and things like that. There's no question about it. Uh, that that's true. 
but the existential tension is going to be a characteristic of the world of Torah scholarship in this particular regard. At least I think so. Uh, because the existential tension means it'll never go away. There will always be the, the, the need for this type, but it'll always be counterbalanced by the need for, for that type. And it's just very interesting the way these things these things uh, go, um, down to the point that today, if you want to know halacha, you can get a an art school halacha book, but they'll leave things in and leave things out, you know, or any uh, book like that. You want If you want to do it right, you know, if you're in the rabbi business, you have no choice to do it right. If you have real shayla, you got to go from the gemara and gemara up. You know, and, and work through Rishonim and all, all the rest of it. It can be a pain in the neck, but you got to do it. You see, and you can't simply say, "Well, I'll just look it up in some book." Um, you know, for garden variety, shall I? Fine, but you know, if it's if it's, if it's an issue that you know, presents uh, uh, difficulties, um, and so you know, the, 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 these issues are are with us all the time. And the river is a major milestone in the history of this phenomenon. That was the point I wanted to make, and with that, I bid you a good day. Like I said, there's a lot more to say. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't want to overwhelm anybody. Once again, we thank the Elbams and we wish and Nisham Shavaliyah, Chief's father. And like I said before, I knew that world. I grew up in that myself. So it's especially sympathetic to me. And with that, I bid you a good day. I got to send my son off now to Israel. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.